victory is achieved through submission. Our willingness to walk in humility and weakness gives God the opportunity to demonstrate his strength. In the story of Isaiah's suffering servant, God delivered his people not by military might, but by the means of a humble servant motivated by love. In this series, Pastor Lee teaches us that God eventually exalted his servant, which not only afforded us salvation, but also becomes the blueprint for how we overcome oppositions in life, in strength, in humility, and submission. Say it again. Hallelujah. <laughs> praise the God of our Father. Praise God our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> Isn't it awesome that we can just be in his presence and enjoy his spirit? And, um, you know, the, the, the scripture talks about how he inhabits our praises. So as we glorify God, it's a, it's a reminder that his presence is with us and that as we give him honor and we give him praise, it's a, it, it is an expression of the fact that he is powerful among us. Amen? Amen. Amen. I, I'm extremely happy uh, for the simple fact that my wife has come home. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That was uh, an extremely challenging one week. <laughs> yeah, the, those, those children of mine were planning mutiny, uh, trying to get rid of my regime. <laughs> and the worst thing that I ever did was feed them. <laughs> Have y'all seen that movie Gremlins? <laughs> Yeah, they, they, in Gremlins, you know, there's these furry, there's this furry monster, and, and they had like uh, this rule that you shouldn't feed them after midnight, because once you feed them after midnight, they turn into, they turn, he turns into a monster, and he keeps multiplying and, and multiplying, and then he overruns your house. Yep, my children. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, they multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. It was, it was scary. <laughs> but thank God. Amen? Uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 5 to 7. And give it to me in the NIV. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 to 7. Wait for them to get there. The Falcons are doing pretty good. I know, right? It's like that's a jinx, you know? <sighs> I'm just praying, just praying. You know, it's sad when uh, good is when you're winning three games and you lost three games. <laughs> All right, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own 
advantage. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Let us pray. Father God, we just come before you right now, giving you all the glory, all the honor, and the praise. Father God, we just ask that you will utilize these words to your glory, that as we explore these scriptures, that you will be glorified, that you will be magnified, and that your son will be exalted in our hearts and in our minds. Father God, I submit to you that it's not I that will speak, but it is my prayer that is you who will be speaking through me. And Father God, we just ask that you will convict the hearts of each and every person that is here through your spirit, that if they do not know you, that this will be the opportunity for them to know you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. God has a, a way of doing things that make absolutely no sense to an outside observer. However, when you catch the revelation given by God, you cannot help but to appreciate his masterful strategy. Paul says it best in, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 27. He says, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. I was having a discussion with Muslims about Christ, and, and one of the things that they cannot wrap their, their heads around is how can Jesus be God because the Bible says that Jesus is the servant of God. Because for them, the incarnation, that is God the Son becoming human, is a sign of weakness, condescension, and beneath God. The one thing that is common among Islam and even religious traditions like the black Hebrew Israelites is this notion of theological hypermasculinity. The belief that God achieves victory only through war. The belief that God is only strong if he shows dominance, if he crushes his enemies. That is the God that we must worship and if God doesn't do it that way, he can't be God. They don't understand the love of God. They don't understand the sacrificial love of God. They don't understand his grace and his mercy. They only understand strength. But God is different. As we see in, this, as we see in these scriptures, God demonstrates who he is, not only through power, because of course God is powerful, but he demonstrates who he is through humility, through servitude. See, their religions do not take into the account that the, they do, their religions does not take into account the impact, impact of sin upon the human condition that, uh, that affects not only how we relate to God, but also brings into question our motives when it comes to loving and serving one another. In other words, 
our love towards God and one another is based on conditions. The old Jenny Jackson song, what have you done for me lately? Jesus Christ is the ultimate demonstration of God's love because only Jesus loved God and humanity perfectly and selflessly. And he did all this as Yahweh's servant. The word servant comes from the Hebrew word ebed and also the Greek word doulos. A servant is one who gives him or herself in complete devotion and submission to the mission of another, disregarding their own interests. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. In another passage, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Radically different from how or what we would do if we were God. Let me let you know, if I was God, no, let me not even put myself on that level. If I was a king, <laughs> I'm letting you know right now, I'm not serving anybody. I am demanding service. Five-star service. I want the red carpet. I want the plates made, the dishes made. I, I, I don't want to go anywhere and have to do anything. That's just me. I don't know about you, but that's just me. If I was a king, I would have certain demands. But God and Jesus Christ is completely different. He said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. Remember in the, in, in the Gospels where, you know, where he, he is with, the, he's with his disciples and he takes uh, 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 dishwashing, not dishwashing, but, 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 uh, but rags in a bucket and he's, and he's ready to wash their feet. Do you know in that context that that's the lowest thing that you can ever do for anyone is to wash their feet? And yet the one who created the heavens and the earth, he is willing to stoop so low to wash their feet. That is powerful. And if Jesus can do it, how much more so can we? So when Paul in Philippians 2 identifies Jesus Christ as taking on the form of a servant, he is connecting the Messiah to the servant in the servant songs of Isaiah. To understand the servant songs, we must first understand the overall context of Isaiah. Isaiah's ministry takes place around the time when the Assyrians were invading the northern kingdom of Israel due to their many sins that was rooted in, uh, in idolatry and eventually the, mistreat the mistreatment of their people, which now triggers Yahweh's judgment on Israel for acting wickedly in violation of the covenant. So as a result, the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom of Israel, which took the ten tribes into exile. 
Sin always starts with idolatry, which is simply taking your eyes off of God and placing it on others, whether it is the worship of things or self, which eventually impacts how you treat others. Good example. Adam and Eve took their eyes off of God, turning to the serpent, which led them to the fruit that God told them that they should not have eaten. And eventually, not long after that, Adam turned on Eve. See how that happened? Took the eyes off of God, went after the thing that God said, do not touch. Why? Because they were seeking glorification. Oh, if I eat this, I will become like, we will become like the gods knowing, uh, the, having the knowledge of good and evil. So idolatry took, takes place. Now they eaten of what God told them not to eat, and now all of a sudden, not only did they become enemies of God, they became enemies of each other. How about this? The rich young ruler who went to Jesus and asked Jesus, hey, what, what can I do to achieve eternal life? And, and Jesus gives uh, the rich young ruler, he gives, them, he gives them a list of things, you know. Have you stolen? Have you committed adultery? Uh, do not do these things. Uh, have you been covetous? Uh, have you been covetous? Uh, did you bear false witness? And, and of course, the rich young ruler says, I, I didn't do any of these things. <laughs> okay, good. There's still one thing that you lack. Sell all your possessions and give, it to the, give the proceeds to the poor and follow me. And at that particular moment, the rich young ruler walked away. Well, what took place? <laughs> he thought that he didn't have idolatry in his heart. <laughs> he thought that, you know, that he actually accomplished the, the entire law. Jesus pointed to him the idolatry that was in his heart, which was the possessions that he had. Because had he had given those possessions away and given the stuff that he had to the poor and followed Jesus, he would have hit the high mark of following God and having no idols before God. But it was revealed that he had an idol. The minute you have an idol, you start looking at others differently. So you cannot truly love your neighbors when you have idolatry in your heart. You cannot truly love God if you have idolatry in your heart. Once you have idolatry, you begin to, ha you begin to have a problem in loving God and, and loving your neighbors. And this was the issue with Israel overall. So, the northern kingdom was taken for sinful rebellion against Yahweh. The southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, are still not acting right. And so God's judgment continues this time through the Babylonians. And if you remember, Israel is God's covenant people who, as his servant, were supposed to be fully devoted to, the, to God's mission, disregarding their own self-interest and being his light to all the nations. Y'all see that? 
Let me say it again. God called Israel to be his servant by which they would be fully devoted to God's mission, disregarding their own self-interest and being his light to the nations. The writings of Isaiah not only lay out clear evidence of Israel's disobedience resulting in God's judgment, but also God's intentions to deliver Israel and empower Israel to fulfill the call, their call to the nation. And herein lies the servant songs of Isaiah. What are the servant songs? The servant songs were a collection of poetic, prophetic passages concerning the service, the suffering, and exaltation of Yahweh's servant, who we will eventually see is the Messiah, the eternal Son of God. What are those passages? If you could put them up. We have Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 11. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 13 to Isaiah 53, verses 12. This is what you would call the servant songs. It's a collection of passages that places emphasis on, God, on a specific servant who God would send who would do what Israel basically failed to do. Amen? Matter of fact, when you read the servant songs, you can read into those passages, son, where you see the word servant, and you will clearly see the gospel in the Old Testament. Likewise, you can change out son with servant in the New Testament and see the servant songs lived out. Does that make sense? All right. Let's do a quick exercise just for fun. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And let me know. All right. So let's read along. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, let's read that again, but instead of saying servant, we put in son. Y'all ready? Hooked on phonics works for me? All right, cool. <laughs> let's go. Here is my son whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Does anybody remember seeing this particular passage in the New Testament? Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, 17? Or actually, let's go to Luke chapter 3, uh, 21 to 22. Luke chapter 3, 21, 22. says, when all the people were being baptized, 
Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open, verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. In Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, my servant whom I delight, and Luke saying the same exact thing, instead of saying the servant in whom I delight, it is, the, it is who I am well pleased. So what we are seeing here is that the son came as the servant mentioned in Isaiah. The servant in Isaiah came in the person of the son. And with this understanding, you cannot help but to have joy and appreciation when reading the gospel, the gospel according to the prophet Isaiah. Matter of fact, some, some scholars would say that Isaiah could be looked at as the fifth gospel. So as we dive into Isaiah, we see the victory of Yahweh's servant, his son's victory is now also our victory. It gives us hope that when we submit to God fully, no matter what may come our way, there is an exaltation that is expected to follow. So if you are facing challenges at the job and, and the things are getting unbearable, I want to tell you that if you submit to God, it is not a matter of if you will be victorious, but when that, victor that victory will be made manifest. Matter of fact, our attitudes concerning work should now at this point change because many of us wake up every day and we go to work with the attitude of, I don't want to be here. <laughs> we go to school with the attitude of, I don't want to be, I don't want to be here. Sadly, even on Sunday mornings, we come to church with the attitude of, I don't want to be here. <laughs> But our attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus. I am a servant of God in full submission to God, and I am here to serve because God did not send his servant to lose but to win. Amen? Amen. That is our attitude when we go to work. Hey, I am a servant of God in full submission to God, and I am here to serve because God did not send me here to lose but to win. This should be our attitude when we go to school. I am a servant in full submission to God, and I'm here to serve because God did not send me here to lose but to win. Matter of fact, when you arrive on campus and when you arrive at the job, your, your coworkers, your boss, your supervisor should be happy to see you. They should be overjoyed to see your presence in the building. Why? Because they know that victory is coming to the job because your presence is here. Victory is coming to the organization because your presence is here. Victory is coming to Georgia State because your presence is here. Adobe, a, a student of Georgia State University, I'm, I'm prophesying over you. Victory will come to the Panthers because your presence is in Georgia State University. I'm just saying, just saying. 
We're going to win some championships in Jesus' name. <laughs> I remember not too long ago, I'm going to say somewhat about over a year, I remember my wife was, was working a job that was stressful. It was draining her emotionally, mentally, uh, physically. It was drama. And I remember that every day she would do her best to serve the, the, serve the company that she was employed with. Why? Because she was a servant that was called to do the will of God. But every day it was drama, one thing or, or another that was coming from top down. Supervi supervisor was completely chaotic. He was a chaotic person. I witnessed it myself. And I remember every day it was like, Lord, when is my victory going to come? I, 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 I was not hired to do this. I was not hired to experience this. She was a servant in full submission to God. She logged on on time and she logged off on time. Sometimes her logging off was past the time that she was supposed to log off. Why? Because she was in full servitude to an employer that did not appreciate her. Again, when you are in full submission to God, it's not about if your victory is going to come. It's all about when your victory is coming. And to God's glory, I can tell you today that she's no longer working for that company. She's working for a new company. And I'm going to tell you what she was earning at that company, God has given to her now three times more than what she has received there. Amen. He has exalted his servants. Amen. God sends us to work, to school, to the marketplaces, even as business owners, to demonstrate his victory, to be representatives of his mission. God did not send his servant to lose, and therefore he is not sending us to lose. It doesn't matter what you are facing. The place of your humiliation is the location where God is going to demonstrate his victory. But you got to change your attitude. You got to adjust your attitude so that you can see it. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. See, or behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. This is enthronement language. The ESV captures this precisely. The only other time in Isaiah that the phrase high and lifted up is used is in Isaiah chapter 6, verse, verse 1. And this is where Isaiah sees the Lord, Adonai, Ha'adon, seated on the throne. And Isaiah gives this amazing depiction in which Yahweh is seated on his throne, not in a castle, not in a palace, but in a temple. His robe filled the temple, and the earth was full of his glory. 
Isaiah not only sees a king, but a high priest. He not only sees a king and a high priest, but he also sees the servant, the son of God, the Messiah reigning, both as king, priest, and the glorified servant. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. This is the picture of what David sees in, in Psalms 110, uh, verses 1 to 4. Let's go to that real quick. Psalms 110. In Psalm 110, you see this amazing scenario. Same depiction. Psalm 110. Shouts out to the, the media team. Psalm is spelled P-S-A-L. <laughs> I love them. I love them. You got to give a good round of applause for them. They do, they really do some amazing work. Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, ruled in the midst of your enemies. Verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, who is Melchizedek? Melchizedek in, in Genesis chapter 14 is a, is a Canaanite king. He was the king of Salem before it became Jerusalem. Salem means peace. So Melchizedek was the king of peace. And it goes on to say, it goes on to describe uh, Melchizedek, and his name means my righteous king or king of righteousness or my king is righteous. He is the king of a place called peace, but also in his description is that he is the priest of the most high God. And so Melchizedek is a foreshadow of the Messiah who is the eternal king and priest that is seated on the throne. Isaiah, in the midst of seeing Israel coming under siege by the nations, is able to envision Israel's deliverance with the help of the Holy Spirit. He now sees Israel's vindication, not by the means of God using military might. No, God delivers Israel, not through the sending of the army, the air force, the navy, and the marines. This battle is not won through tanks and nuclear warheads and carnal forms of strength. This conquest, this triumph came because God the Son took upon himself the form of a servant, the form of weakness, the morphe dulo, full submission, perfect obedience, and now that same servant is seated in undeniable glory as king and priest over the nations. 
As Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he says, far above all rule and authority and, and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. If paid the cost to be the boss was a person, it would be Jesus. Some of y'all didn't get that. If paid the cost to be the boss was a person, it would be Jesus because he paid the cost to be the boss. Isaiah chapter 53, sorry, 52 verses 14 to 15. Isaiah chapter 52, verses 14 to 15. And it says, actually give it to me in the uh, NASB. Just want to make sure. Okay, cool. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man in his form more than the sons of men. Verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what had not been told them they will see and what they, have not, what they had not heard they will understand. Going back to verse 14, we see that, this, this, see that it says that his appearance was marred. That word marred comes from the Hebrew word mishat. It's indicating a corruption of a perceivable value. He, he paid the cost of not only having his reputation as the son of Yahweh diminished as a result of his incarnation in which his glory was veiled, he also paid the cost of being humiliated in the sight of men. His physical appearance was tarnished. He was disfigured beyond comprehension. When we see something that is ugly, it does something to our appetite. Get this, in the natural, we look good. We dress the best. We know how to show out. We know how to ensure that every detail of appearance before men and women are without flaws. We even spend on surgeries to fix what we don't like. BBLs, chest augmentations, tummy tucks, nose jobs, whatever it takes to appear perfect. However, regardless of outside appearances, God sees us as having corrupted value. God sees our hearts as being marred. We are tarnished. We are damaged goods. Our image before God is disfigured. It's corrupted, unfit for God's intended purpose and use. In other words, what the crucifixion did to the Messiah's appearance is what we look like inwardly before God. Do y'all see that, that, that contrast? The servant was inwardly beautiful 
but outwardly damaged as a result of the crucifixion. We may be outwardly beautiful, but because of sin, we are inwardly damaged. So when the crucifixion was taking place, it's not only showing God exercising or allowing his punishment to be exercised on his servant, but it was also a demonstration that that ugliness that you see in which now Jesus looks like, he's no longer appealing. He's far from someone who you want to hang with, far from someone you want to be around. That ugliness that you were seeing is really just a reflection of what was taken, what we have in our hearts when God sees our hearts. But verse 15 says that he will sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle is from the Hebrew word nasah, which implies a splashing of blood. In Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, the passage talks about how Moses took the blood of sacrifice offerings and sprinkled or splashed it on the altar and also on the people of Israel as a form of ceremonial washing and cleansing, making Israel his covenant people. The Messiah, Yeshua, as the greatest servant and high priest in his high priestly role, took his blood and splashed it on the nations, making all people ceremonially clean. And now both Jews and Gentiles are now invited into Yahweh's covenant through the Messiah. That should be a hallelujah moment. Oh, you should be shouting and jumping for joy at this point. Because that ugliness that was in your heart that was reflected on the crucified servant at the point of his crucifixion is taken, go, is taken away. Why? Because the servant did his job. The servant accomplished what was not accomplishable by the law. He took your dirty heart and gave you a clean heart. You didn't achieve that. He did. And now he is exalted, sitting on the throne in glory. The servant has, been brought, has brought victory for Israel over the nations, by, not by demonstrating physical prowess, but through his weakness. He gave up his life so that even the nations that were meant to destroy Israel would become covenant partners with Israel in the Messiah. Masterful strategy. Beautiful work where the lion and the lamb can, can lay down together and not worry about being predator or prey. That is wonderful. The victory of what God has accomplished through the servant is that us who were ugly, us who were marred, us who were imperfect, are now looking beautiful before the eyes of God. His salvation has been visible to the ends of the earth. All will now see his glory. I'm going to close by going to Daniel chapter 7. Well, actually, 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 give me Revelation chapter 5. This is not in my notes. 
but I, I want you to see this because this is the same picture. When you read, when you read Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and, and Psalm 110, verses 1, and, and uh, Daniel chapter 7, 13 to 14, and Revelation chapter 5, we're gonna, you, that's good, you can hang right there. You're going to see the same picture from different standpoints. Different writers all looking at the same scene, and this is what they're seeing. This is going to be a heavy read, and then I'm just going to walk off the stage. It's going to be my drop the mic moment. Um, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? to open the book and to break its seals. Next verse. And no one in heaven on, or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Verse 4. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Five. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold. Remember in Isaiah chapter 52, Verse 13, behold, see, the, la the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its, se and its seven seals. Verse 6, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Verse 7, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Verse 8. And, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nations. Worthy is the Lamb. May God bless his people in the reading of his word. God bless you. Y'all have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your evening.